up, everybody? I'm Adam. This is Gannon. This is episode five. Welcome. It's uh, December 21st today. Last week's episode, we were answering some uh, some questions from listeners, and we loved it. So we're just going to start right in because we have some great questions to pick up from. Um, and Gannon's never seen them. Cool. My eyes are closed. Yeah. Shut your eyes. <laughs> what we got? Okay. So from Todd Lowe. What's up, Todd? Yo, Todd. Todd is an awesome dude. He comes from a sim- similar background as me, like drumline mm-hmm. guy. Plays drums and bands, does a bunch of stuff, does a lot of web design. Cool. Um, so, long-time listener, first-time question asker. I've heard you talk about creating art that is true and meaningful without trying to copy and impersonate what has already been done. However, I've seen several artists, whether it be a band, a drumline instructor, or a website designer achieve incredible success by doing what has already been done. What I find interesting is once an artist has achieved success, they then have the freedom, both personally and financially, to create anything they want and tend to pursue that path. So my question is, which do you see as the better sustainable career path? Focusing on building an audience first or being an artistic creative first? And then he has another question, but we'll start with that one. I have so many thoughts on this. You can start. My brain is going to explode. So, really what what you're talking about here at the core is do you chase success by looking at what's successful and then going after that? Sort Mm -hmm. of like reverse engineering what you're seeing as success and uh, chase that hope to get success and then sort of rewind back and then live the life you want you want to live i believe in starting with chasing after what tr- what's truly inside you as an artist you know so building your skill set around expressing yourself in an honest way and doing what really following your gut instincts as a, as a creative person Developing the talents that you feel drawn to on a very instinctual level. There's nothing that you're going to be better at than than doing what you really were made to do, doing what you're what you love and what you're passionate about. If you if you just kind of look at something and go, "That's successful. I'm going to do that." It's <laughs> the chances that you're going to actually be great at that, mm-hmm. and that that's going to be your honest thing are mm-hmm. pretty low. Yeah. So. The only way to do this, though, I believe, is that you have to be okay with with the idea that what you're great at and what you're meant to do as an artist may not be something that could ever be famous or that could ever make you even a dollar. Right. That's how you have to chase after your passion. But what you get out of chasing after that and being true to yourself is you gain a lot of skill that's wrapped around this passion mm-hmm. and it's it's not something that that you have that feels like work because you're just following your gut you're expressing your true self um, and through that process you become a craftsman and th- you can take that craft that you learned being yourself and apply that to other projects and other things that do make you money mm-hmm. so in my case you know like I I grew up being passionate about drumming and then quickly became 
when I was like around 19, a singer and a songwriter, and I started producing my own music and mixing my own music, and I was really into engineering, so I was doing that to express myself, and like, I just felt this drive to do it. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of songs later, I kind of realized, like, whoa, I can produce. That's weird. Like, I'm a producer. Mm -hmm. I didn't even really consider production as being something separate from being a songwriter and a right. singer and an artist. And so I started to separate out those things, like, oh, okay, I'm, I can play drums and I can produce music and I can write music. What if I started doing that for other people and other projects? And mm -hmm. that's kind of what gave me a career. But I never would have gotten good at those things or good enough to get paid for them if I hadn't done it really as a passion of expression. Right. And to this day, you know, the music that I make as a solo artist isn't for everyone. It's not like entertaining. Um, escapism pop music it's you know it's what I love to express it's you know it's about the tension of being alive and the and you know it's about you know my relationship with with the world and with God and with my own thoughts and the tension between emotion and thought and all that stuff so that music you know you don't hear that kind of music really hitting number one very often right. yeah. and, and I've you know it took me a long time but I'm okay with that you know like I feel like the way I I like to say it is like I, I make music for people driving in cars thinking about life like that's kind of my audience so right. unless you know I'm doing a concert at a drive-in you know my, my audience is sort of yeah. scattered out there you know like I like to meet people in with my music you know in, in the place where they're on their own reflecting and mm -hmm. you know it's it's not about a big concert so but i realized like i said through through doing that that i could i could write music kind of and and sort of create an end result that matches a pro, like a project you know, you know i ended up signing a publishing deal with disney and working on a bunch of projects that weren't super tied to like my passion as an artist but i could make a living and and enjoy um, making music as a result of following my passion. So it kind of happened to me a little bit on accident, but I think it's a really viable way to approach a career because mm -hmm. I know that for myself it worked, you know, and I would encourage other people to do that because you don't have to spend a decade, you know, living in a cardboard box practicing your art, right? but you can make sure you carve out time to go after what you're really passionate about, build your skill set, and then be willing to go out and, and use that skill set to make yourself a buck. And, and, and that does end up supporting your artist career. Yeah. So what, I mean, tell me a little bit about what you're thinking, because you have a similar, you have a similar story. Well, yeah, I mean, I started off playing jazz. I mean, I played, yeah, I started off playing jazz. I was in a fusion band. And so that was about as artistic as you can get because it wasn't a very popular art form. I mean, people were into it, but it wasn't like pop music or rock music. Yeah. So I started at art first. It was all about art, writing songs I wanted to do. If people didn't like what I wrote, like, screw you, you know, whatever. It's like I was very, very like, uh, uh, what do you call it? I was a purist in the sense that if it was anything that was outside of that idiom, like jazz or fusion or anything yeah. that I considered high-end music, I looked down on it. Like, this music sucks. It's, it's not, not, it's not on this level. Elitist. It's elitist. Very, yeah, very much. And I, and I also had, I was hanging around people that were 
I always hung around people that were better than me early on. For like, for uh, this guitar player Scott Henderson, who I really admire, who's a great guitarist. I mean, he's a great example of what this guy's talking about. Is where where like he doesn't do anything but his art, which mm -hmm. is plays guitar, plays it the way he wants to do it. He right. writes the songs he wants to write. And I don't know how he does financially. I think he does okay, but that's what he does, and he doesn't compromise. Like if somebody asked him to tour, if Steely Dan called up Sky Anderson and said, "I'll give you two hundred thousand dollars," which actually happened to a guitar player, Alan Holdsworth, yeah. another guy. Sky Anderson, Alan Holdsworth, kind of similar. They're both artistic guitar players that have a voice, yeah. but they're very much they're artists where they will not budge artistically. Yeah. So that means that they're going to be poor or they're going to be like living on this fringe of finances. Maybe, maybe they'll be good sometimes, maybe they won't. Depends on the economy. Like right now, I've heard that guys like that are struggling because of the But that brings thing. up a really good point. It's like, what kind of life do you want? Exactly. You get one yeah. of those lives. <laughs> so, you know, if... They if, don't have families. I mean, Scott may have, I think he has a kid, but... Alan yeah. had kids, but you do sacrifice. There's always sacrifice. There's sacrifice. That's the thing. Yeah. If you're going to be a traveling jazz musician on that level, then the music is so powerful to you that you're probably willing to give up even time with your family because there's those guys tour like 265 days a year. Yeah. So it's like it's see the thing is with a question like that, there's no easy answer because everything has a price. There's yeah. a price for doing what you were talking about, where you take your skill set and you use it for pop art or like things with Disney, which I've done and I know you've done a ton yeah. of. And then there's the par the price of following your dream at the expense of maybe your family or the expense of finances. Yeah. But if you're that driven of an individual and, and you only can be that way, then that's who you are. And there's nothing that anybody can do to fix that or just change it. That's the thing is like my argument is is that the only thing that you're truly going to be great at is what you're passionate about and what you truly have been gifted in. So yeah, because it'll shine through with when you do it people will feel it it'll be real yeah no matter i mean you have to look at your motivations like are you if you're motivated to be rich and famous you know i feel like that's there's something wrong going on psychologically like why do you want to be rich and famous you right. know what it's one thing to want to just you know make a good living right. but if your goal is worldwide fame and you know gazillions of dollars i would argue that you know, you need to look inside and see, like, what what are you trying to fix internally to right. get that thing, you know? Because if you're willing to do anything it takes to succeed, which I know, Todd, you're not saying, but um, weighing that stuff and figuring out, like, okay, do I want to be the best me I can be? And do I want to live a fulfilling artistic life? Well, that is always going to be chasing after your passion and going after what you're you're truly drawn to. I think yeah. I think I think there's a lot of truth in the fact that like what we're truly drawn to and passionate about are things that if if our psychology is kind of um, in a healthy place, we're passionate and drawn to things that we actually have like a natural a natural aptitude for. So like, you know, I was just for some reason drawn to and passionate about drumming. And when I went to do it, there was sort of, it was in me. And I think the same thing happened with songwriting and just kind of as I've gone through my life, you know, my, my passion and, and even like maybe a sense of vision always followed something where I felt like, you know what, I, I think I can do that. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like if you're sitting there, I, I, I like this analogy of just like, if you've ever stood across like a, a little uh, creek bed or something and you're like, 
you're standing there and you want to jump across this creek or, or whatever it is, you kind of know like if you can make it to the other side. There's something in you that's just like, ah, that's, I think I can make it. And then you, and then you jump. Mm -hmm. And then there's that, that distance that you're like, ah, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I think that's kind of the way it works with, with, um, with talent. You know, like I look at people playing basketball and I go, I, even though that'd be fun to be able to do that, like, I just, I don't think I can do it. So it's like, there's a certain amount of like honesty with yourself yeah. about like, okay, do you want to be a, a guitar player because it gets you chicks and because it looks cool? That's not a good reason to choose playing a guitar. You always hear guitar be play, great at it. You always hear guitar heroes say that, but really it was a guitar that did it. I mean, they were in love with music. Totally. Girls were a secondary thought, you know. But going back to the thing with Holdsworth and Scott, is that the only reason I brought that up is that Holdsworth turned down a high-paying gig with Steely Dan to be the opening guitar player. He was the opening act, and he was a guitar player in the band. Whoa. And it was a lot of money. I can't remember. I shouldn't say how much it is because I don't know, and I don't want to speculate, but it was a lot. And so he was a prime example of a guy who was living for his art, doing what he loved to do, and not compromising. Mm -hmm. And with all that comes, you know, the pitfalls. And yeah. Like, what we've done is we've, I know, for me, one thing I consider successful is if you can make a living playing music, you're successful. Because that in itself is, a, is an incredible feat. Yeah. Because people don't re realize how hard it is to make any money in the music business, right. especially right now. Back maybe 10 years ago, it was a lot easier, but nowadays it's like everybody's scratching to get something, you know. So it's a hard time in the music industry. So if you're actually doing it and that's what you do for a living, then you're successful, you know. And that, because what would you rather be doing, playing your instrument, doing what you love to do, or would you rather be working at Stride Right, selling a 12-inch shoe to a man with smelly feet? That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're talking about defining success. And yeah. There are a lot of layers of success. There's... There's but somebody might not be happy with that, though, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's what makes you happy, it's, it's what makes you feel fulfilled, but there's, you know, success in terms of what the world thinks, or success in terms of, you know, which is like kind of respect and things like that, and then there's success in terms of how much money you make, or do you make enough to provide for your family. But and there's, then there's personal this, best. <laughs> personal best success. <laughs> and that's, you know, personal best success. <laughs> He's making a reference. Sorry, inside joke on Kenny Powers, but anyway. Um, that's like, you know, there's no better success for me personally than the success of getting something that was inside out. Yeah, I totally agree. I could never... That's awesome. I never get enough of going like, ooh, something's in there, and then you work, and you go through that artistic process, and then you make it into something that other people can experience. Yeah. Some sort of work of art. That to me, to successfully have sort of, you know, brought the inside out and sort of mapped out my insides and said, like, here's a song, this is how I feel. Like, that to me is like success. Yeah. Now, if you can turn that into some dollars, then it's great because that just keeps the whole thing rolling. But um, yeah, it's funny how there's certain things that fulfill you even though they don't make you money. And music does a lot of that. It's like, you'll be working on something that most likely will make you a dollar, but yet it's the most fulfilling thing you've ever done. And then there's things that aren't fulfilling at all, and you make a lot of money, and you're just like, well, that's that's the trade-off in life. It's like sometimes you're doing something that's like purely for yourself, and other times you're, you know, it's a work-for-hire situation, or, you know, it's all it's all valuable, I think, 
because you can't always get your own way either because it's like a child that gets his own way all the time you don't learn and grow it's like you get those things help you appreciate what you do have yeah or how you can grow so i think it's all valuable you know it's a hard question because it's very individualistic you know it's like that's why the answer is individualistic it's like follow your path there's only one you yeah no don't no doubt about it so be that you know there's a classic thing like who are you be you because everyone else is taken yeah it's really true it's like if you're chasing any other idea of what's going to be successful you're just going to end up being less you um so i think that's really it's really an important concept to just be like okay i'm going to be the best me that inevitably is going to be the best um you know driver for success you know so well, go, he did the other part of the question that said copycatting and basically making money off doing somebody else's work, basically. Or Yeah. The thing about that, though, is that... What's already been done is what he's saying. Yeah, but the thing about that is no matter... Like, if you show me a lick and I play it, the way I play it's going to be different no matter what. Because I, I touch the strings differently. I bend differently. I might get it close, but we're all humans and we all have our own, like, clocks, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, we all tick differently. You know what I mean? But we do. Mm -hmm. We have our own thing. So it's like no matter how you try to copy something, you that's how, in some ways though, when you're young and you're learning, copying is how you sort of get an individual sound because you'll start by hearing somebody and then the way you transform what you heard can sometimes provide you your own style, you know. Because you, yeah, you have to start from said. somewhere. You got to start somewhere. I mean, nobody just starts from ground zero and doesn't come up with anything on their own. It's impossible. We all have influences. So yeah. It's a, so it's how you take your influences and, and turn them into you. you. I think the way to do that too is not by just necessarily parroting, although like you said, when you're younger that's kind of what you do, but is to internalize your influences to the point where they're filtered through your own likes and dislikes, you know, like your own instinct about what you want to do. Right. And I remember for me, like at early on in my life I had I had two different drum teachers, you know, and um one was Mike Jackson, who was my drumline instructor in high school, and that was very, you know, rudimental approach, you know, more intensity-based and, you know, separated from the drum set a lot of the time. And and then I had a drum teacher named Evan Stone, who was actually the, the, the drummer in your fusion band. Yeah, yeah. Great and drummer. Great drummer. And those were, like, completely different worlds and different approaches. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were worlds that like, they were separate from each other. But I was like the connection point between these two worlds, mm -hmm. for myself anyway. And what I realized is that like, you know, I I would take some from this and some from this, and sort of like, it really helped me to understand like who am I in the midst of it, you know. And I was like, this is the age of like between fourteen and seventeen years old and eighteen years old, and you know compared to the to Evans drumming which is much more fluid and and flowing he's he's much more from a jazz fusion based mm -hmm. background i found what he did to be incredibly inspiring but i also felt like i didn't want to play exactly like that right. like there was something from this other this other world there's an intensity to it that that i knew was more me Mm -hmm. And and actually, in my lessons with Evan, it would come up like, um, 
oh, you're playing a little stiff or something. I'd be like, no, I, you know, I just knew, like, it's not stiff That's for me. Yeah. It's it's an intensity that I feel like is me, you know. Right. I related to drummers, you know, like, you know, Stuart Copeland or guys that, that played with a certain amount of, of that, what you could call maybe a stiff intensity, but that was the emotion I wanted to express. I right. wanted that that snap and that bite right. as opposed to a, a fluid sensibility. So... Yeah, I mean, you're, you're describing two polar opposite drummers. Yeah. Mike Jackson comes from a... I'm not saying he's just technically minded, but in the world of drumline, it's very technical. It's all about precision and the way you hit the drum. Yeah. And then Evan couldn't be any further away from that in terms of, like, he's loose. He's all about looseness and, orga yeah. and, and the sort of organic development of music and, and how you... The thing that's like comparing um, classical music with jazz. I mean, classical music is... Is, is stiff written out music and then jazz is very like much about interplay and how you react in the moment but they're all both super valid because the guy that wrote all that stuff was expressing himself one way and the guy that's playing the jazz kit is expressing himself a certain way you know yeah that's like it's the difference between something that's composed and then played as the composer intended yeah and the other is composed in the moment and you have to have a certain a different skill set which yeah. is more about interaction yep. it's listening there's, there's a different language yeah it's yeah. a lot more about listening and you know classical music is about listening too but what they're listening for is like intonation pitch and tempo <laughs> pitch and tempo being you know connected to the group and being right. united in terms of dynamics and it's a whole all these different paradigms have their like sensibilities and, and yeah. pretty fascinating though if you think about it and the cool thing um i think any musician would be would really learn a lot from studying jazz to some degree, just a little bit, and listening to the interplay between the musicians and hearing the notes and understanding what notes sound like, especially intervals. If you can start to hear notes and intervals, it really helps you as a composer because then you kind of know what you're listening for. You know, what's a fifth sound like? What's a fourth sound like? Not to memorize these things, but I think it really helps you. Yeah, and you're learning the language that you're trying to speak. Yeah, so. I mean, I know there's plenty of musicians and artists that don't do that, and that's fine, and I, I think it's all valid. Like, I'm sure Joni Mitchell doesn't know, you know, what a dotted eighth looks like, you know, it's like, but she can play great music and she does it with one finger and, you know, tunes her guitar a certain way and that's how she yeah. expresses herself, you know. And Bob Dylan plays four chords and he expresses himself, but it doesn't hurt to learn things, you know, I think that's, it's good to have those extra things, you know. Yeah, technique exists for a reason, but the reason is always, you know, expression. And, and to create worthwhile art that moves the human soul. So yeah. if technique starts to become your goal, then you're, I think you're misusing technique. You know, it's like, um, well, that's you like might find that you can be an innovator in, in technique if you don't, if you give yourself some space to like, figure out how you're gonna get the result you wanna get um, without first learning how everyone else gets that result you might end up innovating, you know, like, yeah. I think, I think it is important to get great at something and, and, oh, yeah. and to, to have mentors and learn things, but how you learn, I think is just, it, how you learn and why you learn is really important, because, you know, I remember times early on, because I was, you know, a fairly trained drummer, mm -hmm. um, and then when I picked up a guitar, I was just kind of feeling my way in the dark. I learned a couple chords, and mm -hmm. you being this extremely accomplished guitar player, you know, I I started writing songs 
you know, kind of as a result of Gannon, he was writing songs and I was dr drumming in your band mm -hmm. and and I got the bug for writing. And so I'd spend time at home and I'd be playing these chords and stuff and doing stuff and just floating around. And you'd, and you'd come in and play guitar on my recording and you'd be like, oh, you're playing sort of an E minor, but it's kind of an E minor seven or whatever. And you say, if you put your finger here, that'd be a standard E minor. Mm -hmm. And through that, I would find things that were very non-guitarish. Mm -hmm. And I remember you telling me that, like, well, that's weird. I never thought to play that like that that way. Yeah. And and vice versa. When I hear you sit down and play the drums, I'm always struck by the the choices you make that are non-drumistic. Right. You know what I mean? yeah, yeah. So I think learning something in a box and learning something in a standard way. Um, can actually box you in, sure, yeah. As opposed to allowing yourself the freedom to fumble around and innovate and go after what your vision is, that's how you get new styles of music. That's how you get new ways of playing guitar. That's how you. That's how these things happen. These turning points. Yeah. And so, I would always encourage people to have that moment of of freedom yeah. in whatever they're doing. I had that epiphany when I was, um, I you know. I learned a lot on guitar. I knew all the different chords, I knew scales and modes and stuff like that. Yeah. And I was writing songs and I got to a point where I wanted to deconstruct all of that and get away from theory and get away from all that stuff. And I was listening to like the Kinks and all these bands and really immersing myself into very simplistic rock music because I wanted to break down to the core of what it all was because I'd gone to this further extreme of like crazy technique playing and playing over chord changes and taking that to the farthest region I wanted to go with it. Yeah. And then I wanted to go the complete opposite direction where it's like, okay, three chords, what do I do with that? You know, like right now I'm in definitely a minimalistic stage. Because right. I think I've done so much in the other direction where it's like I played so many like notes and play with these great musicians yeah. and stuff. Now I want to deconstruct and find what's the core of like simplicity. Because simplicity to me seems even more difficult than playing lots of notes. It's like, you know, now you're getting into a whole different conversation about like, note choices and things like that and maturity but right you know so you, you started out being super interested in like jazz and like really digging into the depth of jazz fusion music and learning learning guitar and being totally enraptured by how complex that was mm -hmm. so bring us bring us from there to like present day where you're you're into minimalism well, I mean, we were talking about giant steps. Let me play that chord regression real quick. So, like, okay, so yeah, so a good example of where you came from, yeah. the complexity of playing a chord progression like this. <laughs> Anyways, that song's pretty difficult, and I spent many years working on that and trying to figure out ways of making that sound not difficult. How do you navigate through those chords with, you know, by playing melodies and not making it sound so angular? So, I mean, that's like one extreme, like taking music that's harmonically super complex. And you had to keep that that chord progression in your head. Yeah, you had to like memorize it. it. Yeah. So like, if you were to just solo over those chords right now with no, without the chords playing, what would that sound like? Pick, but it sounds something. Thank you. 
mean, you're you're navigating through the chords and trying to come up with melodies. If, if you can't hear the chord progression, it sounds a little weird, but it helps to have the chords behind it. But, right. but you can get the gist of it. You're playing through the chords and trying to. That's the thing about when they talk about playing through, on chord changes. You're not playing on the chords. You're playing through the chords. Meaning, mm. you know, it's like you're you're not punching up an opponent. You're punching through the opponent. You know what I mean? <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. The same kind of concept with music. So. After going to that degree where everything was very complex, the most complex chord progressions, I wanted to break it down to something more simplistic and find things in, in like maybe like three chords or four chords and try to find the most emotional and best thing in that, which is the, where I'm at right now. It's like that's to me the most important thing. So if you were to take, here, go ahead and play the chord progression. Edit that. One, two, one, two, three, four. So, let's take that progression. So, Ooh, as, I'm jamming to as the you iPhone. To, as you play to the iPhone. Now you're talking about like a million different things. You're talking about phrasing, putting phrases together, rhythmic phrasing. I mean, there's a whole landscape of things to work on with jazz. I mean, motif building. Or if I go, you want to repeat that in some way. You know, developing ideas and motifs. Same thing in classical music. You take an idea and you expand upon it and you keep developing it. So in a way, the whole idea of um, people who get absorbed in transcribing other soloists' work is kind of to see their train of the thought. way they think. Yeah, to see their train of thought with how do they approach each chord, what are their melody choices, what are their note choices, note choices, choices, and, you know, rhythmic choices. Basically, you're just analyzing, you know, a fine sculpture and trying to figure out how it's put together. Yeah. And then, invariably, if you do that, you take some of those things on but then the way you play it will end up different anyways. Yeah, so when you were just playing that, you know, what kind of things are going through your mind? Were you thinking of... Connecting the dots. Other people's playing? No, just connecting the dots, playing, playing melodies and motifs, trying to develop something, you know, because you're thinking at a million miles per hour because you're dealing with chords going by that quickly. The only thing you can really do is, is try to find melodies and rhythmic patterns and things that work through it. Some of it is pattern-based because the music is happening too fast. Mm. If it was just a one-chord vamp, that gives me time to just make melodies. Right. Yeah. But when things are happening at rapid tempo, that many chords, you're going to have some patterns because there's no way of getting around that. You know, yeah. it's hard to be completely pure improvising when you're dealing with things coming at that quick. Yeah. So you're trying to connect. Three, three chords might go by, and you're trying to find those common tones and those ways to get 
you're almost aiming maybe for a chord that's coming a few chords down the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're thinking yeah. a couple moves ahead, like chess. Yeah. You're thinking way, a lot of moves ahead. Like, when I go here, I gotta go here, I gotta go here, and you know what these things sound like. Mm -hmm. The thing is, in order to know what it sounds like, you've had to have studied scales. Because if you play scales long enough, you start to know what the notes sound like consecutively. Right. And then if you start working with intervals and trying to hear, you know, like if you know, you know that's a sixth. Everything has a sound. Like if you hear this, that's a fifth. So when you hear a fifth, you think rock. But if you hear a sixth, you think of the blues. Or country. Right. If you hear a fourth, that's a specific sound. Everything has a sound. A third, you think of, you know, Dr. Luke. <laughs> Every EDM track known to mankind uses thirds moving yep. up and down, you know. So everything. A brown eyed girl. Uh, that's thirds. <laughs> yeah, so thirds. Every interval has a sound and, a, and, a, and an identity. That's part of the language. Yeah, and, it's part of the language. Yeah. And pentatonics are, very, are valuable. That's a very valuable scale in the sense that you can get a lot of mileage out of a pentatonic. So yeah. through technique, you're creating a language that you could then speak to express yourself. Yeah. But if you learn a, a technique, purely for the sake of the technique and you disconnect it from the, the expression, you're, you're, you're kind of doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. You're almost like, you know, it's the analogy I think came up in, in the first podcast of like, if you're just working out to work out, mm. what are you doing? You know, but if you're working out in order to be, you know, to achieve some goal in, in a sport or in life or to be more fit or, you know, to not get tired when you're holding your kids when you're right. older, like whatever it is, like, you know, to look better is even one, and that's the most common one, but... Mm -hmm. Feel better. If your only goal is to just lift a heavier and heavier weight, mm -hmm. that's a different thing, and, and maybe that's a bad example because it's not as much of an artistic goal in the direct way that... Well, scales is, are like lifting weights. Scale is just, it's a means to an end. You learn mm -hmm. a scale so you can communicate. Right. You know, if you don't know, a, if you had no idea how a scale went and somebody handed you a guitar and said jam, you can't jam. Right. <laughs> All you could do is go <laughs> meander around on a string. But if you had the knowledge of a basic scale, then if somebody said jam and A, you could be playing around this scale. Even in the most basic yeah. way, you could be jamming and communicating with another musician. I think that's exciting to me about music is that. It's a, it's a language, so if I know, a, a, if we both know the same language to a certain degree, we can communicate musically. Mm -hmm. And I think when I teach kids sometimes, that's an exciting thing to see their eyes light up when you show them a scale and they play notes against the chord and they're like, whoa, that actually worked and I don't sound <laughs> bad or dumb or any right. of that stuff, you know? It's a very empowering thing. I think if, if anything, music is empowering for people that don't even play music. If you can just play a couple chords and get that cathartic get something out, I think it's the most valuable thing. More people should just try to play music yeah, because it's such a great outlet and it's such an emotional expression. It really is. You know, but it's fun. And when, going back to the other stuff where it's like, I've been really immersed in pop music, that kind of almost goes back to classical music because pop music is very structured and melodically can be very structured in a way where like if you hear a classical composition, you can see you would you would analyze it like you would analyze a Coltrane solo. You would see that they they had a motif and how they developed it, why they went up to this note, how that how that interval brought the piece up. It's mm -hmm. very like 
mechanical. But then you hear Stevie Wonder, and you hear somebody who's emoting, you know. But still composing. But I mean, still that, composing. It's still composition. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, it's like too much. The difference. Too much information in one podcast. Composition and improvisation, because a lot of composition is improvisation on Instant some level. Improvisation, yeah. Yeah. So it's all exciting, though. I mean, it's like this is what this podcast is about. We should, you know, delve into these things later. We will. Yeah, stuff. it's fun for sure. Give me that. You jam. I want the guitar. Now you jam. I'm gonna show you how it's done. <laughs> So, let's get, to, let's get to some of these other questions. Right. Um, uh, so, Ethan Edge Ireland from Facebook, awesome name. Um, he asked, how do you feel the arts as individuals has impacted your lives? And the second question is, have you ever felt that through your music you've changed, and in my case, saved lives? So... I'm not sure if you're saying that the the music somehow that we've done has saved your life, or music you've made has, has saved your life, uh, or has saved others' lives. I need to clarify the that. The vibe I got I was that he's wondering if something you wrote has saved somebody's life. Um, uh, not that I know of, but it's taken some lives. It's <laughs> definitely <laughs> <laughs> music kills. I've heard of music saves. Music kills. Um, well, the way art has impacted my life is like, it, it can't even be, I can't overestimate it. Like, for me, it's been the thing that has like, made me feel, it's going to sound a little over overwrought, but it made me feel like I exist, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to create something that's a reflection of how I feel. You know, I've always felt, like, very sort of naturally isolated, you know, as a human being, you know, like, that the, there's something in me that I never felt like people, that I could express or that people could could understand, or I never felt understood, and, um, and I don't know if it was a lack of ability to, ex to explain myself or a lack of willingness to be vulnerable or what exactly it was, but through, you know, first through through playing drums, I felt like that was a real representative of like me, you know, expressing myself and who I was. And I felt like there was a big part of me that came out through that. And then when I started writing songs and singing, that was just, and recording, especially all of those things together, writing music, I just felt like finally I could take what was inside that I couldn't quite get out and turn it into this little thing, this little, mm -hmm. this thing outside of myself that felt representative of this inexpressible part who you are yeah yeah and and the fact that other people could now hear that and i could point to that and go like you know in a way this is me this is like a snapshot of this internal thing and to have somebody else get it even just the ability to share it but to have somebody else go like me too is just the ultimate in that mm -hmm. and you know i did a thing uh, a little over a year ago where you know I, on facebook maybe some of you took part in it but i I put out this questionnaire just to people who, you know, listen to my music and ask them questions about themselves. I want to learn about about you guys and, and then ask questions about how they related to my music. And honestly, some of those things brought me to tears. Just seeing how, you know, work that I've done has impacted somebody else's life is just unbelievable to me. Yeah, and just cool. so 
and, and you know in that moment that it isn't about you anymore mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of it it's like if the artist is forgotten and the work takes on its own life and it becomes somebody else's mm -hmm. there's a kinship there you know there's like a there's some sort of human connection that you, you almost can't get in any other way that's mm -hmm. so special and like the relationship that I have that, with the art that I love, you know, whether it's a movie like Shawshank Redemption or, um, you know, the composer in that movie, Thomas Newman, has made some of my favorite music of all time. A lot of it is in that movie. Mm -hmm. um, or other artists I admire, like, um, you know, like Chris Cornell, especially his first solo album, some of his Soundgarden work, you know, Jeff Buckley and these other artists. Um, there's something in that music that, that when I'm hearing it, I feel like, well, that's, that's, there's something I connect to that feels mm -hmm. like that, that's me, you know, yeah. like there's something about, and I can only think that there's something about that artist that I relate to. And mm -hmm. It just makes me feel like I exist. It validates sort of my own existence by, by, by that connection. And there's this warm blanket effect that that has. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, C.S. Lewis is a writer that, that that I have that feeling with. Like it's just, especially relative to my relationship with God. Like I feel like when I read that, I just I go like, yeah, that's there's truth. I think mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to. It's like you hear you and you hear or you see truth displayed before you, and you just go like, yes, that's this loneliness or this solitary feeling that I have, it's broke, it's kind of broken through by the arts. There's mm -hmm. a bridge built. Um, I mean, what, what, for you, what's, what's that thing? Well, in terms of music or just like the way I feel about art? Yeah, I just... Well, to me, art is like all-encompassing. It's what I, I'm born, I was put on this earth to, to play music. I know yeah. that. Because I loved it early on and I had an aptitude for it early on. So it's like something that, I don't ever think about it, it's just something that I actually do. You know, everything's music. So if it's like putting together a track or if it's like playing the guitar, I, th I would say that the most emotional connection I have is guitar playing. Like when I really play the guitar, if I play a solo, if I play over blues or whatever, jazz, when I express myself in that degree or over those kind of idioms, then that's me expressing my heart. You know, and lyrics are the thing I want to focus on this year, like trying to learn how to better express myself through lyrics, you know. But music is the way I express myself the most nat most naturally. Yeah, when I hear you, it's it's interesting too because I've known you you know over twenty years and I when I hear you improvise in music, even if you just sit down at the drums and play or through your you know your main instrument guitar, I can hear the intensity that this is a needed part of your life. It's like this yeah. is part of your. Your core self is mm -hmm. like I, I hear the intensity of you on this planet when I hear you solo. That's you know? cool. I mean, when I'm at home, I sit and play for like a half an hour a night, just playing over like jazz stuff, usually like a jazz blues or some different standard yeah. or something like that. But it's for me, it's something necessary. I have to do it. And I get something out of it when I hear it. Like I remember That's going cool. to the Big Potato and hearing, hearing and watching you play. It was like there's some there's something in the intensity of it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I know. Some of the things you've gone through in your life, and just being able to relate to that—that that need to get that stuff out—is mm -hmm. like it comes across, and you know that's that. If yeah, the most intensity come, all the intensity comes out usually in the guitar. Yeah, 
you know. And then other things are the selective intensity, you know, like if you're building a track or something, that's more brain, some heart, but a lot of brain. But when I'm playing the guitar and I'm doing something with that, that's very emotive, mm -hmm. you know. And honestly, your best, your best stuff as a songwriter and a producer is, is the stuff that, you know, I'll hear something that you bring in and, and show me, like an idea or something, mm -hmm. and, and the ones that are just like, yes, I almost invariably you're like, yeah, I was writing that about this thing yeah, that's yeah. going on in my life. We have a subject, know? yeah. Yeah, or something a, true that's going concept, on for you. Yeah. Um, cool question, though. Yeah, great awesome question. Um, have you ever felt that through your music you've changed? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I think every time I write a song and get a piece of myself out, it changes me because it's, it's, it's like self-validating. And then if anybody else, one person, all it takes is one person to, to connect to it and have that, like, totally me too feeling, mm -hmm. that changes me in terms of, of validating, but also, like, you know, sometimes when you lose yourself in songwriting and you come out the other side, you're like, wow, I didn't even know I was really thinking that. I didn't even know that needed to come out. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it can be, you know, it's sort of a cliche, but your own work can sometimes be therapy. Not only the making of it, but just when you start here and there's no song, or you start here and there's no piece of art or whatever, mm -hmm. and you get here, you've had a cathartic experience and you can you can kind of learn from yourself. Oh yeah, it's the for best. Sure. I love that. I love starting from nothing and having something at the end of it. It's the best. Yeah. You know. So let's move on now to Mahan Bonnie. I think I'm, um, or Banny. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, by Facebook. What are the best memories of Mission Viejo that you guys have? So I'm assuming you mean Mission Viejo High School. Um, or maybe you just mean the city. Good old Mission Viejo. Good old Mission Viejo. Well, you know, Mission Viejo is like, what do I think about Michigan? You didn't go to Mission Viejo High School, so I'm not sure if you're qualified, man. Yeah, I don't think you I lived did. in Mission Viejo. I lived in Mission Viejo for many years. I mean, I love it there. It's cool. It's just a, you know, it's like a suburban safe area that you live in. And it's got cool... I really like strip malls. <laughs> I'm like the worst person because everybody's like, I hate strip malls. They're ruining life. And I actually kind of dig them for some reason. I don't know why. They're like, like a comfort zone to me. <laughs> like I like a good old Kohl's or a... Not Walmart, though. I think Walmart's evil. You like a good old. I like it. It's a good old-fashioned strip mall. So like, I'm going to assume that you mean Mission Viejo you know, High School. Not a strip mall. Not a strip mall. Um, this is this would be a good point to. Uh, I'll give you my my favorite memory of of when I was at Mission Viejo High School, and then we're going to cut over to Mike Jackson, who couldn't be here today, but he is going to answer a couple of these questions from you, Mahan, and. Also, Peter Crawford, that were specifically directed at him. Um, but my my answer to that question is, I think my best memories of Mission Viejo were were musical um, and relational. Like I think being able to be in the Mission Viejo drumline at that period of time, when I think marching arts and that whole drum world within the high school. Thing. I mean, Mike Jackson was 19 years old when I met him and he was teaching me, so he was a mentor. And just being able to find a kindred spirit in him at, at, when I was like 14, 15 years old, um, I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of it then, but we thought so much alike and I really responded to the way he taught and just 
you know, by the time I was a senior, we were friends, and um, and also Jim Wonderlich teaching there as well, like friends with him, and just my all a lot of my memories go back to just being in the drum line and just being obsessed with drumming and really connecting to the intensity of that, and then also, you know, some of those memories. I have memories of the girls I dated in high school. Shout out to you guys. You know who you are. Um, just great memories of growing up, being a teenager, and sort of finding yourself as a human being. Yeah. To me, it was it was finding myself as an artist, also mm -hmm. figuring out who I was, what I loved, what I didn't, and um, I think those those are the memories I take away. So, over to Mike to answer uh, that question, and also Peter Crawford's question. Hey, this is Mike Jackson doing the podcast, answering some questions. Uh, that were sent in earlier in the week. Mahan Bani asks, what were my best memories from Mission Viejo percussion? Uh, probably 1999, going to Dayton, not knowing where we stood nationally. Um, the years prior, we had taken seventh place, sixth place. We kind of been in that zone. And we just were doing our thing, our normal SoCal thing. Uh, and we get there and, and it's just, everything just sort of feels regular. And then uh, we get done with our prelims performance and we look at the board. Back in those days, they used to just write the results on the wall by hand um, in real time. Like as you get your score, the results would go up. And we ended the night in first place and we couldn't believe it. Um, we had never been in that position before. We experienced uh, success in Southern California, but nothing like that. And I think the the memory that comes out of that um, was later in that trip. Um, this is after our finals performance, but we hadn't received the results yet. I I took a moment to just sit by myself in the stairwell of uh, Nutter Center in Dayton, Ohio. And I, I must have sat there for 15, 20 minutes just in complete silence. Um, you know, everybody's using the elevator, nobody's using the stairwell. And I, was, I had the place to myself and just taking it all in. Like, what does it mean? Reflecting on it. And then eventually coming out, um, realizing that while it meant a lot um, to experience that sort of success, it really. I reflected on the season and it didn't change anything that we had done, the preparation, the way we went about um, our philosophical approach to the ensemble. Um, nothing had changed, nothing was different. And uh, I think that was apparent in subsequent years um, more than it was apparent in that actual moment. But uh, yeah, what a, what a crazy ride that was. Um, we actually ended up in second place at finals. Uh, we got a timing penalty and wow, there was a good lesson that all the rules matter. You can have the greatest show in the world, but uh, you have certain parameters you got to follow. You got to get off the floor when you're supposed to get off the floor. I think we were 14 seconds over or something like that. And uh, it knocked us into second place. Um, so it was kind of a bittersweet year, but at the same time, you know, we were used to taking seventh place and, um, Overall, it was a, an incredible learning experience and uh, probably my favorite memory.
All right, Peter Crawford writes in and asks, uh, how do you begin the creative process of a show? Do you start with source material and develop the concept from there, or do you start with the concept and then find source material? Um, the answer is both or neither. Sometimes source first, sometimes concept first. Uh, there really is no formula, and at least at least for me, um, and my my time with Mission Viejo. I think the question was directed in the con in the context of Mission Viejo. Um, it's a little uh, scary because there's no formula. Uh, you you kind of don't know what you're getting into. Um, until the season is upon you. You have certain things that inspire you, certain things you're passionate about, and, and you gravitate towards those ideas. Sometimes it's as simple as a song or maybe a lyric. Uh, it could be a, a concept, a thought. Um, I remember uh, a show we did in 2000, it was called State of the State. Um, I had just gotten my, uh, my first um, transponder for the toll roads here. Um, locally and it was just a weird thought that there's this thing in my car and I, I drive through this this bridge and it senses the transponder and the beep goes off and it was sort of this like big brother moment um, and so I I, I just kind of took that idea and of course with the with the 1984 um, Orwellian kind of theme and we developed this this whole show around that basic single event of this transponder on the toll road. So it kind of just happens how it happens. Every year is different, and that's what I like about it. It keeps it fresh. Um, I honestly, I, I I never have things so planned out that that I I'm always comfortable. I feel like I'm always on the edge of my seat, um, not knowing like what direction things are going to go. It's good to have a plan, of course, but. Uh, I don't want to have too much of a plan. I think um, I think you miss out on some opportunities if you don't allow yourself the freedom to kind of create on the fly or be inspired by by things in the now. Um, and in relation to that, I think something that that um, I do plan out is is the uh, the team I work with, the people I work with. Um, getting the, the, the machine, so to speak, in place, that is well planned out. And then, but the, the individual shows, the concepts, the themes, um, a lot of times it just, it just happens. I know that's not a black and white answer for you, but there really isn't one. All right, the next question is from Todd Lowe. He asks, which do you see as the better sustainable career path, focusing on building an audience first or being artistic and creative first? Uh, wow. Um, and my gut says that uh, you be who you are first. That's your, that's your product, so to speak. Um, and if it's, if it's great, um, it will find its way everywhere. Um, I think I just quoted a Coca-Cola ad. I remember seeing that. Um, but, uh, but basically, I, I think, and, and that's kind of how I feel about what I've done um, 
just in my life is I've, I've always been inspired by, by what I'm doing, um, the, the possibilities of what I could do rather than how many people are watching or how many people care. It, it's awesome to have people care, but uh, I don't think that that drives me. I think if I somehow found myself on this planet alone, um, of course, with existing resources, I, I would probably still make music by myself, even though no one's ever going to hear it. Um, I would probably figure out some way to be creative with the things around me. Uh, so I, I think, I don't know if I can offer that as, as advice to everybody and in every context, but certainly for, uh, for me, my phone just buzzed, excuse me. Um, it's, uh, the product has to come first and then you build your audience because you have great things. Um, he also says, to go along with that, do you see any value in doing what has already been done as a starting point to learn from what others have achieved? Uh, it depends on who you are. I think if you're, if you're in an activity that you're really passionate about, but uh, maybe you're not that good at it, or maybe it, you, you just haven't had enough growth opportunity. Um, you haven't built the wisdom up in whatever your field is. Um, I could see value in studying the masters, so to speak, um, it, whether you're you know, a, a violinist or a percussionist or, or a painter. Um, I think it's good to know. And that, I think that falls in the category of technique. You're, you're, you're learning that technique, you're, you're analyzing it and take it in for what it is. Um, that doesn't mean you have to make it you. Um, but um, yeah, I think you kind of have to know what's come before so you have a, a sense of context. Um, you know, but then <laughs> there's also something beautiful about when, when there isn't a sense of context, when you're just creating from a vacuum, um, when it's, it's the least derivative, um, there's something beautiful about that too. So I, I think, again, um, it's not a black and white answer, but, uh, but um, I would say as soon as you can, you, you be yourself. But, you know, you got to get your skills in whatever medium you're in. But uh, be yourself as soon as you can. Ethan Edge Ireland asks, how has the arts impacted your life? Um, it's been my life. I, I don't know how, I don't picture it as an impact. It's just been, uh, since I was 10 years old, I got my first bass guitar, which I still have. Um, and uh, I immediately started writing my own songs and looking for like-minded people, um, just trying to make my own little uh, fake album covers and writing the lyrics on the back and uh, just doing a lot of silly stuff. Um, and it was awesome. I just have nothing but great memories um, from that time period. Uh, even in, in, I got into high school and just as a student um, in, in the music class, we would write songs and even got the jazz band to play one of our, our tunes that we wrote. Um, we did like the full wind chart and, and everything and um, it was terrible, but it was cool that the director let us play it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it really, it's just been my life. So I can't, it's not like I was going along and then all of a sudden it, it, it had this impact. It's just been the way things have always been. 
Um, and uh, previous to that, I was, you know, in Little League and baseball was a huge part of my life. And at some point, it was like this crossfade between baseball and, and music or the arts or just being creative in general. Um, but it's just been everything I do is, is about this. Um, uh, he has a second part of the question. Um, have you ever felt through your music that you've changed lives or saved lives? Um, I, I don't know if it's, it's specifically through my music and I don't know about saving lives, but um, I know that the, the programs that I've been a part of, um, I, I think one of the, the coolest things is getting an email from someone in their 30s and uh, with a family and a career and they tell you how much of an impact that you had on them um, or the, the program that you, you were responsible for had an effect on them. And they're, they're thanking me 15 years later um, is, is so cool. And a lot of times it's those, it's those kids that were, were more problem children. Um, the ones that, you know, rough around the edges and you might've had to like get a little gritty with them. Um, and then, you know, they graduate and it's sort of this feeling in the present of good riddance, you know, <laughs> let's get rid of the drama and let's move on with a new batch of kids. And then 15 years later, this name pops up in your inbox and it's this kid and you remember all the things and they're, and they're saying, thank you. And man, that's gotta be the coolest thing. So, um, uh, that's, you know, I'm not aware of saving lives, not aware of any situations like that. I would hope that no one would ever be in a situation like that where things were so low and dark that, uh, you'd have to get to that point. But, um, I know that, uh, I know that, that the creative fields and, and art and music has, has given me hope through the years and, uh, through those tough times. So I, I would assume it's the same for, for my students. We're back. Thank you, Mike, for answering those questions. Um, sorry, couldn't be here, but next week Mike will be here. I think pretty sure unless he's out of town. If he's not out of town or in a coma, he'll be here. We love answering these questions. Yeah, it's fun. It's really great. Um, love that you guys are watching. Really appreciate it. And we will see you next week yeah. on the Broken City Artist Podcast. Enjoy your Christmas. Yeah, have a great Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. I got a D minor for your Christmas. <laughs> Nothing says Christmas like a D minor. Uh-uh. Ooh, that was nice. Peace.